0: and welcome to Rising. I'm Amber Athey and I am back this Friday with Jessica Burbank. Jessica, hi. I don't know what I'm doing
1: wrong, but the aliens, they didn't beam me up. (laughs) So promises made, promises kept back on Rising this Friday.
0: Absolutely. What is up first for us today, Jessica?
1: Well, Tucker Carlson is
0: out with episode four
1: of his Twitter show, this time offering his thoughts on the Fox News Kyron calling President Biden a, quote, wannabe dictator. Let's watch.
2: The main reason you know Joe Biden is not a wannabe dictator is because he just does not fit the profile as a man. Mm -hmm. Dictators have that look. You know one when you see one. Dictators build cults of personality around themselves, and they use those cults to deny the glaringly obvious. In his later years, to name just one example, North Korean dictator Kim Il-sung developed an enormous baseball-sized tumor on the back of his neck. It was huge. It was grotesque. It was right there. You couldn't ignore it. You couldn't possibly not see it. But in North Korea, state media did ignore it. They pretended it didn't exist. And so, in some important sense, it didn't. If a tumor grows on a neck but no one acknowledges it, is it really there? Thankfully, nothing like that is happening in our country or ever will if Joe Biden ever developed some profound physical or medical problem that was obvious to everybody, journalists would say something. This is not North Korea. We don't have state media here. If Joe Biden was, say, incapable of completing a full sentence or mistook his sister for his wife or suddenly started falling down in public for no reason, the New York Times would report on that and then get to the bottom of what was actually happening. That would be its duty in a free country like ours. It's not like they would cover it up. The very idea of a cover-up sounds like a conspiracy theory, a dangerous one, actually, so stop it.
0: Well, there you have it. I, uh, I love the rhetorical device that Tucker is using there. Um, he went on to talk about the fact that Biden had given that speech uh, about democracy in front of that sort of demonic red backdrop that looked awfully dictator and also mentioned the fact that the media has kind of refused to talk about the, the, so many of the corruption stories that we've covered on this show, Jessica. Um, but Fox is not happy that Tucker has been doing this show on Twitter. They're apparently trying to go after him to get him to stop it by accusing him of violating the terms of his exit from the network. What do you think of Fox's response to this Twitter show?
1: I think that it's, it's really revealing of the kind of dangerous media uh, stronghold that some major networks have on their staff, on their reporters, they can control what Tucker says because he signed a contract and he's not even working with them. That's scary that we live in a world where that's possible. And I think this is getting at that larger issue. But as far as the Twitter show goes and what he's saying there, it kind of sounds like his thesis is Biden doesn't have that dog in him enough to be a dictator. He's just not, (laughs) he doesn't have the vibe. He's not cool enough but we do have a media that is very biased towards establishment candidates that's very interesting so it's kind of like we have the conditions where we could have a dictator but biden's simply not cool enough to fill that role or i guess doesn't have the mental fortitude to seems like a part of his thesis and i i don't know i think it's good that we have tucker carlson Being slightly more sensible than what they're reporting on Fox, I don't think Biden is a dictator simply because they're investigating Trump. I do think we have a problem with having a very biased DOJ and very biased media. I would agree with that. But I think Fox is going after Tucker because they know Tucker uncensored by producers or the folks at Fox is kind of a dangerous one, one that might make stronger arguments for what's going on in our politics and give better explanations than Fox can.
0: Exactly. And they're worried that he's going to continue to draw viewership away from their primetime shows. I believe their primetime viewership has declined by about a third since Tucker was forced out of the network. And I think Fox's major problem is — well, two major problems. The first is that they've never explained why Tucker had to leave. And some reporting from my colleague at The Spectator, Chadwick Moore, suggests that it was a condition of the Dominion lawsuit settlement for Tucker to lose his show. Other sources close to the situation have told me that uh, Rupert Murdoch was apparently upset with Tucker Carlson because his fiance was a huge fan and thought that Tucker was some kind of almost religious figure speaking on behalf of God. And that really rankled Rupert Murdoch, who called off the engagement shortly thereafter. Um, But Fox hasn't publicly confirmed or denied any of this. Um, They've been really mum on the issue of why Tucker actually left. Other people have said it was because of the religious overtones of his speech at the Heritage Foundation the Friday before his uh, unceremonious exit the following Monday. But again, nothing from Fox itself, and yet they are turning around and going public with this uh, potential legal fight against Tucker for having the show on Twitter. So. It's kind of like you can't have it both ways, right? If Fox is going to go after Tucker for allegedly breaching his contract, but then still remain silent on the reasons why he was forced out in the first place, that leaves viewers in a very unsatisfied position. And it's only, I think, more liable to turn viewers off and push them towards alternatives.
1: Yeah. And then we have Tucker's counter argument, right? Which is hey, you basically admitted to blame by taking this settlement with Dominion, which you said you wouldn't do, and so you violated the contract first, which usually how things go with contract laws, whoever violated it first or after it's been violated once by one party, the contract is no longer legally valid and binding for Tucker Carlson in this situation. So if that's how this contract works, which many of them do, Tucker Carlson wouldn't have violated it. And I think we can understand the Murdoch's decision with Fox News if we just consider, all right, where's the money going and why? I don't think they're particularly happy with dishing out nearly a billion dollars for this kind of a settlement. And I think they know that they could incur more lawsuits like this. It's not the first time the Murdochs have had a pretty scandalous lawsuit hit one of their, their news companies, which they have many of in many other countries. They had to testify in the United Kingdom about the wrongdoing of journalists there. They had journalists following members of the royal family and prominent figures tapping phones. They've been involved in some really intense lawsuits around shady journalism in the past. And I think they've learned that their method that works best is to kind of send the establishment message with a little bit of anti-establishment rhetoric that we've seen in Fox, but generally toe the line when it comes to broaching any kind of legal uh, ambiguity here. And so they don't wanna be dishing out money in lawsuits. They wanna be making money. That's what their board wants, I'm sure. That's what their shareholders want, I'm sure. Any of the news corporations that are owned by Murdoch. He's learned this lesson before. He'll learn it again. It's about the money. Is Tucker Carlson pulling some money away with this Twitter show? I don't know. Is 10 minutes of a news clip on Twitter taking away from people watching cable news? Maybe. But maybe they're just upset that he was fired without explanation and they were loyal loyal Tucker fans and now they don't want to watch Fox because they're upset about that. Uh, so yeah, using this exclusivity, it could be about money as well. It's, it seems like that's what makes most of the decisions for the Murdoch's.
0: Journalist Glenn Greenwald speculated on this, and he accused Fox News of trying to silence Tucker for his anti-establishment views. Let's watch.
3: Clearly, a 10-minute show is not intended to be a live show to distract other people or take people away from watching television. It's only 10 minutes long. It's not appointment viewing the way his previous Fox show was. And yet, Fox is adamant, emphatic, that he is not allowed to speak, even on Twitter, that he's allowed to speak nowhere that you are not supposed to hear from Tucker Carlson at all until 2025, until notably after the 2024 election is over, after the GOP primary is done, the Republican Party picks its nominee, after the various criminal cases now facing Donald Trump, work their way through the criminal justice system, and until the 2024 election is held. You're not supposed to hear from one of the most influential voices in all of American politics at all because Fox News has decided that they're going to threaten to sue him if he speaks.
0: It really is scary that Fox could potentially sideline one of the biggest voices in political media until after the 2024 election and it really speaks to this broader trend of a lot of media companies establishing these really rigid contracts and NDAs that When people leave companies, they end up having to silence themselves for a period of time. And I I think that's really harmful to our public discourse. What was interesting about this episode four of Tucker's Twitter show is that he openly called out Fox for the first time. He's sort of hinted at issues that he had with the network in the past, but he actually names them. And he mentions the fact that this uh, Chiron operator who put the wannabe dictator line on that Chiron on the Fox show. Uh, was forced to resign because of the incident after being with the company for a decade and overall performing very well. And he basically accuses Fox of being in bed with the establishment and getting rid of this guy because, as you said, Jessica, they will traditionally kind of push at the edge, but overall toe the line.
1: Yeah, this could be a very interesting lawsuit between Tucker Carlson and Fox News. And regardless of how you feel about Tucker, this could be precedent setting in a good direction to regulate corporations from being able to control what individuals are able to say. If we think about the First Amendment of the Constitution, freedom of speech and freedom of press, would we be fine with a corporation saying, Sign away one of your most basic freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution for a paycheck? Should that be legal in the United States of America? That's kind of at the heart of this lawsuit. That's what it sounds like. That's something that could be heard before the Supreme Court. And I'm not sure how Robert's court would decide on that matter. We'd have to look at the details of the case, but it seems to me that this could end up being a really landmark Supreme Court case that would help us regulate corporations infringing on our free speech as individuals, especially when it comes to legacy media.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there were so many cases of, I know it particularly in conservative media, of people leaving companies and and knowing all kinds of shady things that were happening there and not being able to talk about it because of the contracts that they signed. And yes, you enter a contract willingly, but The reality is that pretty much every media company has this at this point. And so if you want to work in the industry, you basically have no choice but to sign away that right. And so it raises a lot of really fascinating questions about First Amendment rights and and freedom of speech culturally as well. We're going to take a break and be back with more Rising. RFK Jr. could beat President Biden in the first two contests for the 2024 Democratic presidential nomination. This, according to Axios. Traditionally, Iowa and New Hampshire have been the first to vote states in Democrats' primary contest season. But last December, Biden changed it to South Carolina.
1: Iowa and New Hampshire Democrats didn't take kindly to the move and are threatening to throw a wrench in the works, holding their contests regardless. This would all but certainly block Biden from winning. The first two contests, as the president's camp already said, he won't be on the ballot in those states if they vote before South Carolina. If that's the case, RFK could end up being the beneficiary, possibly scoring some victories in the Hawkeye and Granite states. This is an interesting situation to be in. I'm in the camp of thinking that perhaps the primary process should just be held in a way where every state votes on the same day. That makes sense to me when I think about a functioning democracy. I think it gives kind of undue power to the states that go first. People like picking winners. And if the population of those states isn't really representative of the country, they might sway voters in the following states. Amber, what do you make of the mess?
0: Yeah, there's definitely a point to be made that the early states do determine a lot of where the momentum is. Um, However, obviously, in the last election uh, primary process, Biden was not doing very well until he got to South Carolina. So I don't really buy the Biden administration's reasoning for trying to change the primary calendar. They claim that they want to move South Carolina into the first position because it is more racially diverse than New Hampshire and Iowa. But it just seems a little convenient that this so happens to be the state that basically kicked off Biden's win streak and a state in which he traditionally performs very well. Uh, Now, all of a sudden, they want to kick Iowa and New Hampshire out when Biden didn't win those states last time.
1: I think that's such a good point, Amber. That was absolutely the case, that the big win in South Carolina led the Democratic Party to say, all right, everybody, we're going to drop out and endorse this guy. This is the establishment candidate that's performing the best. And so now we're in this really sticky situation. I think Iowa and New Hampshire, because it's a part of their, their state constitution, that they hold the first primary contest in the case of New Hampshire and caucus in the case of Iowa, They're going to really push for this. I can see a world where they absolutely hold their contests anyway. They care a lot about what this brings to their local economies. We have this kind of political industrial complex where campaigns going in and spending a bunch of money, having staff in there. There's kind of an economic boom around the caucuses in Iowa and the primaries that are first in New Hampshire. And so they depend on this. It's also a big deal culturally for the parties there, whether it's good or bad, I think they're gonna push to be held first in Iowa, New Hampshire anyway. And what does that mean for for a candidate like RFK who's polling quite well behind Biden? It might actually give him the advantage.
0: Well, not to mention that Biden's name might not even be on the ballot because his campaign is trying to hold firm and saying, if Iowa and New Hampshire go first, we're basically not going to participate in that process. I think this has ramifications for the general election as well, because if you anger these local parties that traditionally are used to having a lot of power, if you tell them that their voice doesn't matter, that you don't care about them, the DNC is going to do what it wants, that's not a good look. I mean, if I were one of those local party officials, I would potentially be up upset enough to consider pulling support from Biden if he moves along to the general election. Yeah,
1: I also would point to the caucuses being an absolute mess for the Democrats in 2020 in Iowa. They relied on this kind of technology that was not fully tested or fleshed out. And this was something that local Democrats, progressive Democrats in Iowa Iowa, were saying, do we really want this large tech corporation to be running the caucuses on our behalf. There were all kinds of reporting problems. The caucus process is already quite chaotic where it's instead of people casting ballots into a machine, a bunch of people going to their respective corners of a high school gym and they debate with each other over which candidate should be the president and convince people standing in other corners of the gym or cafeteria or church or what have you to come over to their side. It's absolute madness. And you can imagine there's a large group of people who might want to participate in the political process, but don't really want to participate in a social event or let all of their neighbors know what their political beliefs are. And so I think it's time to do away with the caucus and hold a primary that is just all states voting at once. But that's not going to change the fact that Biden hasn't campaigned like this uh, for the presidency. We had COVID hit in 2020. We don't actually know if Biden can stand on the campaign trail against Trump and if he can run another primary again. So that's gonna be interesting to see as well and might be another advantage for the candidates running against Biden in the primary.
0: Yeah, that's really important. I mean, Biden basically ran a campaign from his basement in 2020. He didn't do a lot of public events. He didn't really spend much time on the campaign trail at all. I did an investigation of how many hours he was actually working when he was on the campaign trail in the September leading up to the election. And he was not even pulling a 40-hour work week. Uh, So it was not good news for his ability to be able to actually perform the duties of president. We've now seen since then that he loves an early press lid. he does not do very many events in the evening, and when he does travel, he usually takes a few days to recuperate afterwards, typically at one of his homes in Delaware. Um, So this campaign is going to be pretty tough on him, especially if he's going up against Trump or one of the younger, more spry Republicans. Um, I mean, I remember fondly being in New Hampshire for the Democratic primary Um, last cycle. And uh, there's something really nostalgic and sort of romanticized about that process. And at that time in 2020, Trump actually came to disrupt the Democratic primary by holding a rally at the University of New Hampshire. And it was more well attended than any of the Democratic candidate events and was basically the talk of the town and received outsized media coverage as well. So if that's the type of strategy that he's going to be taking heading into this Democratic primary season, which is drawing all the attention away from their candidates, then Biden could be in trouble.
1: Yeah, I think campaigning against the Democrats in the primary is an interesting strategy from Trump. But also, I think this is going to be a campaign that's really defined by their work in the digital space and on online spaces. We haven't seen the Biden campaign do a particularly good job at that. We've seen Marianne take off on TikTok. We've seen RFK do a really good job using Twitter. Uh, and we really haven't seen the Biden camp capture an online following in the same way. As someone who's a millennial. a lot of the Biden content is very cringe. <laughs> and so the Dark Brandon stuff is funny. That stuff's good. I don't think they know how to uh, capitalize on it. And I know that Gen Z for change is now kind of in the establishment camp, which is really disappointing to see a lot of those organizers that were really pushing the Biden administration left and doing a lot of effective digital organizing around student loan debt and what have you, Now they've gotten invited to the White House a bunch of times and are fully in the Biden camp during a primary. This is a group of organizers that used to be very progressive. And so perhaps Gen Z for change might be able to deliver for Biden on the digital front, but he doesn't have that kind of organic popularity that RFK and Marianne have demonstrated to have. I think what happens online Matters more than ever. Grassroots organizing hasn't been the same since the pandemic. And I really don't think they're going to win on the doors. Not that Biden ever had a big ground game. I just think digital is going to matter a lot more this time around.
0: It almost seems inevitable that the establishment candidates don't have a good social media presence because everything is so manufactured. All of the tweets are written by somebody, you know, in a press room who is completely divorced from the candidate and is just trying not to get in trouble. So you never really have interesting content. I think that's why Trump's social media presence is so fascinating to people because he really is no-holds-barred and doesn't have that traditional press-style approach to being on social media. But we'll see if RFK Jr. can maybe pull some momentum from these early primary states and give Biden a run for his money. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Joe and Hunter Biden allegedly coerced a foreign national to pay them $10 million in bribes, according to people familiar with the investigation into the FBI's investigation into Republicans' much-hyped FD1023 report. This is according to The Federalist. Early this week, Senator Chuck Grassley revealed a foreign national, identified by the Federalist as Mikola Slavchewski, the founder of Burisma, reportedly possessed 17 recordings quote, implicating the Bidens in a pay-to-play scandal. While 15 of the audio recordings consisted of calls between Slavchewski and Hunter Biden, two were with Joe Biden.
1: Slavchewski so reportedly explained the steps he took to avoid being caught and then said he never paid quote, the big Guy directly, and it would take about 10 years to unravel the multiple paths the payments took. Meanwhile, the New York Post reporter Stephen Nelson asked Biden yesterday why the Ukraine informant file alleging bribery called him "quote the big guy" back in June of 2020. Let's watch his response. Why did
2: the Ukraine informant file? Why that so so you. You you. You.
1: You. You a correct. question? So 17 recordings uh, being in possession is very interesting. The idea that Joe Biden was on the phone directly with the founder of Burisma, all of this extremely interesting. The reporting originally made it unclear if the vice president, now president, was directly involved. Sounds like he was, so this is a bit of a a bombshell report. Uh, We don't know anything about the informant. It sounds like there was one informant from within the FBI that was familiar with the matter. Uh, But this reporting is pretty, pretty damning if true.
0: Yeah, exactly. So this is the culmination of lots of investigation from the House Oversight Committee. And this particular file was very interesting because originally the FBI basically pretended that they didn't have it, that it didn't exist. A member of the House Oversight Committee, one of the Republicans on that committee, uh, apparently had already seen it or been made aware of it. And at that point, the FBI's bluff was called, and they had to eventually provide the document under threat of subpoena. So it took some finagling to even get access to this. But basically what these documents allege is that not only was there a confidential source who was rated by the FBI as highly credible. Um, alleging that there was this bribery scheme involving Biden and Burisma. But now also that the confidential informant supposedly had, or rather the Burisma official supposedly had these tapes directly implicating Hunter and Joe Biden, um, which would be, of course, irrefutable evidence that this bribery scheme did in fact take place. The Republicans are cautioning that they don't know for sure if the tapes even exist, only that this individual claimed to have them. But if they do exist, I mean, that's as you said, a bombshell. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. This would suggest that everything that was on the Hunter Biden laptop regarding hunters getting, you know, $30,000 a month from Burisma to sit on the board despite having no experience in the energy field, and then the top prosecutor looking into corruption at Burisma getting fired while Joe Biden was vice president and directly in charge of uh, handling those matters with Ukraine it all starts to make sense, right? It seems like all of the threads are slowly connecting.
1: It's certainly nothing new that we have members of the American government that are very high up, that have connections with multinational corporations with foreign bases. However, what is interesting about this, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, is that this could be an opportunity for us to establish some anti-corruption laws in this respect or some way to move forward in a democratic way to prevent situations like this from arising going forward. I think even if you're someone who supported Joe Biden as a candidate, you consider yourself to be a Democrat, it's a good precedent to set legally in the country to establish strict regulations from a president ever being able to do that. Moreover, it seems the FBI has demonstrated they are not equipped to handle situations like this. They've demonstrated that time and again. And there are many other countries That have anti-corruption organizations within their government to investigate situations precisely like this one the fbi doesn't seem that they've ever been particularly inclined to investigate those holding the highest public office in the united states and so perhaps we need another division but i think there's a stigma around addressing okay we need an anti-corruption division of our government and we don't want to believe we're some kind of corrupt banana republic. The United States only establishes banana republics through coups so we can exploit their land and labor, of course. We don't have one of those at home. We don't have corruption at home. Of course not. But I think this is really the political moment to establish that. Even if you believe the Republicans are acting in their political interest with an election coming, this is still something good to have, to have a good government.
0: Right, and it feels like we're not getting it, and or it, it's taking so long because so many politicians are corrupt. They don't want all of this to fall back on them, because if the president of the United States can go down for a bribery scheme or some kind of corruption where he was uh, trading influence and access for money from foreign Uh, related businesses, particularly ones in China, which is the the U.S.'s number one geopolitical enemy right now, then what's going to happen to them? I mean, we talked about this on the show last week, the fact that Jared Kushner had made tons of money from Saudi Arabia after helping to negotiate the Abraham Accords. We know that all of these politicians, particularly Nancy Pelosi, have like near perfect stock records um, that are even better than some of the top investors in the world. They managed to somehow get every call right and continue to enrich themselves over and over again while they're in office. So unfortunately, if the establishment is involved, we're not going to see massive uh, anti-corruption movement because they don't want those dominoes to fall into their lap.
1: That's absolutely true. And I think it's important that we note that it's not just being reported that there were calls between Biden and folks in Ukraine related to Burisma, Joe Biden, not Hunter. So Joe Biden being involved in those calls, but also it's it's alleged by this person who's close with the matter that it was a 10 million dollar bribe but five went to hunter and five went to joe i think that's really important to point out here but back to your point that you were just making amber i hear a lot we just need to get money out of politics we just need to overturn citizens united we need to make it so that we can't have these huge dollar donations and dark money going into political elections and campaigns And That's just not the extent of corruption we have in the United States. That's not the extent to how people with wealth and power use their money in ways that manipulate our democratic process. When they have so much control over media and what folks in media are saying, and what advertisements people are getting on their Facebook, when they have control over what's being run on television and you have these huge conglomerates running cable news, even local news, the extent of control people have over the narrative, people with a lot of money and a lot of influence, that matters, I think, almost more than any money that can be spent with its limitations on a political campaign. There has to be intense reporting done on that. There's intense limitations on that. But when it comes to running media companies or having bribes with multinational corporations, there's a lot more corruption just because we have a concentration of wealth, not because we don't have the laws necessary to regulate that wealth from being donated directly to political campaigns. The problem of corruption much deeper than that in the United States.
0: Yeah, I want to go back to this reporting on Biden being the big guy again, because I think this is important in terms of the timing of that statement. So this uh, Burisma official apparently referred to Biden as the big guy back in June of 2020. And that was well before the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop were reported, in which he has an email on his laptop referring to setting aside 10% for the big guy from one of his foreign business deals. And at the time, there was a lot of speculation, obviously, is the big guy Joe Biden? And it seemed to be the case, but there was not really confirmation. Now we have an independent source also referring to him as the big guy before that laptop ever came out, before anyone saw that email. Um, So it further confirms the, the email on the Hunter Biden laptop about setting aside money for Joe as well. So that's sort of an I think, underappreciated thread in this latest uh, document that the Republicans have found from the FBI.
1: Yeah, I think it's very interesting, and it very well could be the link of Joe Biden and these folks and these documents. But I also know that a lot of people say, oh, it's the big guy, referring to like their father, their friend, what's up, big guy. So. There are a lot of people who could be the big guy when it comes to these business dealings. But I do think like they were trying to use some kind of phrase instead of directly implicating Joe Biden. But I don't know if this would hold up in a court of law. I used to work in an intellectual property law office. And if something was just like a common phrase, you couldn't trademark it because it's just something people say a lot. People do say the big guy a lot, especially in situations like this. So I'm not sure that that convinces me directly, but it does seem to be a very strange coincidence in this context that it was in the the June documents and was repeated.
0: Yeah, I mean, if someone can come on the record confirming that the big guy in the email is Joe Biden, then that's definitely big trouble for the Biden family. I find the media reaction to all of this so fascinating, too. I was just looking around last night at you know, who's been reporting on this latest trove of documents, and all of the headlines from the mainstream media are about how the Republicans have nothing on Biden and their investigation is falling apart. So it's pretty mind-blowing to see the difference in how this is being covered by, I think, honest people and people who are more interested in covering for the establishment. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more Rising after this.
1: Mega podcaster and comedian Joe Rogan conducted a three hour plus long interview with 2024 presidential candidate with the Democrats, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. That aired yesterday.
0: They covered lots of ground ranging from COVID vaccines, 2024 and the CIA in regards to the Kennedy legacy. Let's watch some of that.
4: But what do you think happens when you get into office? Like, if you're, you're, you're talking about your uncle who's assassinated and you believe the intelligence agencies were a part of that, what happens to you? Well, I've got to be careful. I you mean, know, I'm aware of that and I'm not, you know, I, I'm aware of, the, of that danger. And, I, you know, I don't live in fear of it, um, you know, at all. But I'm not stupid about it and I take precautions.
0: I am interested in what kind of precautions he's taking, Jess, because I think if the CIA decides that he is persona non grata, there's only so much you can do.
1: Someone get your boy a bulletproof helmet. I don't know what else we can Oof. do. Uh, <laughs> I know he's out in public, he's posting videos on the campaign trail, he's traveling quite a bit. I mean, if they take him out, will it be before he gets into public office? I'm not quite sure. I think. If RFK ends up getting assassinated, it's going to open up a Pandora's box of what's happened with the intelligence community in the United States over the past half a century or more. And so I love when we have members of the Kennedy family giving some insight as to what they believe went down. It seems to be that the consensus generally is Uh, JFK, not RFK, but JFK was, was not a fan at all of how the CIA and covert operations that were done during the Cold War era conducted themselves. He was very critical of it. He didn't like the CIA as a branch of the federal government. And so because of that, it would make sense that he would be a target by the CIA. So I don't think what RFK Jr. said there is some kind of wild conspiracy theory. I think if we look at the pattern of behavior of the CIA and the intelligence community in the United States, it pretty much tracks.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems basically universally agreed upon, for the most part, that the official narrative regarding the JFK assassination is obviously not accurate. And that necessarily leads people down the rabbit hole of speculating about CIA involvement. And that's a pretty widely accepted theory at this point. I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it might have been called a conspiracy theory, but now people are actually taking that seriously. And I think it's nice to see, as you said, a member of the Kennedy family who's willing to sort of buck the political establishment and speak openly about all of this, and and not just regarding the assassination, but also some of the other topics that were covered in the interview, whether it was the pandemic, the vaccine mandates, and uh, he's talked a lot about energy policy as well. It's all just super fascinating. Um, And the fact that he went for three-plus hours on Joe Rogan, I think speaks very highly to his ability to campaign and to talk to people and get his ideas out there, because that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. I think I've only ever done one podcast that was longer than an hour, hour and a half. And that's hard work, especially with his voice condition. So I give him a lot of props for doing that.
1: Yeah, and props to everybody who listened through the whole three hours (laughs) of RFK Jr.'s voice. Uh, It's a tough voice to listen to. but. He does have some good things to say, which is really what's important here. Uh, you can't pick your physical form. And so, yeah, he definitely does have a condition when it comes to that. And it's it's a difficult thing to, to run with. Uh, Joe Biden knows that very well, the kind of reaction you get in the media. But I think just the fact that he was willing to sit down with Joe Biden and openly speak for three hours is something in and of itself. So many times we have these candidates that get in front of a camera, get in front of a crowd, and suddenly they're speaking in platitudes, it's very scripted sounding, sounds like they've rehearsed in the mirror and with a team of consultants. People are getting sick of that. I think people have always been kind of turned off by that, but podcasting I think is a good platform. I think instead of a presidential debate, if we got just an hour long podcast describing your policy platform from each of the candidates, that might be more useful than the very polished questions and responses we get when candidates typically run. So these anti-establishment candidates changing the game, I think is something good in and of itself, even if you don't love RFK Jr. and what he has to say.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like the Trump phenomenon in the 2016 election, which was you had this guy who appeared to be speaking authentically off the cuff. He injected a lot of humor into his rallies. And that was something that people really resonated with. They wanted to hear from somebody who not only was taking their concerns seriously, but was also able to speak about them in a way that was simple and, and easy to understand and promised to do something about it. It seems like Traditionally, presidential campaigns are so overly scripted, they're so boring, and it creates this sort of unattainable sort of hero status for the people who are running, like they're supposed to be the saviors of our country. And they speak like the founding fathers wrote, you know, hundreds of years ago, and it all It's a charade that I think has gotten to be quite silly, especially when you do hear people like Trump, like RFK Jr., like Marianne Williamson, being willing to buck that trend and do something different.
1: And I love that he spoke candidly about topics that are really important. Like he spoke about his uncle's understanding of the military industrial complex. We have a clip of that, let's watch.
4: My uncle, John Kennedy, you know, did that. He, he refused to go to war. So he, he was surrounded by military-industrial complex and, um, and he learned very early and an intelligence apparatus that he realized early on that the purpose of the CIA and the intelligence apparatus was to create a constant pipeline of new wars for the, for the military-industrial complex the day, uh, uh, three days before he took the oath of office. Eisenhower, who was the outgoing president, gave what is probably the most important speech in American history, which was, you know, where he warned against the military industrial complex. I was at my uncle's inauguration. I was in Washington that day. I was, a, you know, a six year old boy. And I was sitting on the stands behind him during, in front of him during his inauguration. And he understood that. And two months later, the military and intelligence came to him and said, We got to, uh, we got to, invade Cuba, and he was like, I'm not going to Cuba, and I'm not going to let the military. And they said, well, we got all these Cubans trained, and they're going to go attack Castro. And he said, well, we can't, the U.S. government can't be doing that. We can't be attacking. I don't like what Castro's doing down there, but it's not the United States' job to dictate what kind of governments other countries have.
1: That is the real deep state in the United States. The fact that a sitting president could direct the CIA to have operations in the opposite of the direction of what they want to do and for them to move forward with covert operations to assassinate Castro and what have you. I always was critical of the Reagan administration during the Iran-Contra scandal when we had Ronald Reagan say he wasn't aware of the arms being sold by way of Iran to the Contras in Nicaragua. but. Based off of what the CIA operations were in Cuba and what JFK's position was, it does really seem to me that you had the CIA operating kind of independent of our chief executive officer, which is really concerning. And I just appreciate how open RFK Jr. is with all of this.
0: Yeah, and you see over time that every individual who speaks out against the military-industrial complex and also just... the neoconservative approach to foreign policy gets attacked with all sorts of slander, whether it was Trump for being against the Iraq war and wanting to pull troops from Afghanistan, whether it was Tulsi Gabbard for saying that we shouldn't support regime change in Syria because it would lead to all kinds of instability, or whether it was Tucker or other more populist right individuals. Warning about sending billions of dollars to Ukraine and weapons that we're unable to properly track or account for. I mean, all of these people have been just totally, uh, you know, criticized to the ends of the earth by the establishment because they've dared to speak out about Americans getting involved in more foreign conflict that doesn't have any tangible benefit to their everyday lives.
1: And I think this is at the heart of our democracy. We don't have candidates running for president talking about foreign policy near as much as we should. And it's, it's at the heart of our democracy to choose who is going to be at the head of the US military, the largest military in the world. That's very important. And so when you have candidates that shy away from talking about really key foreign policy issues, not only that, but it's a threat to our national security, the covert operations that the CIA and intelligence community have executed over the past half of a century. Every other country around the world is acutely aware of those operations. They've had their leaders cooed by the CIA. They've had elections overturned by the CIA. They know very well what the United States has been up to abroad, more so than many citizens in the United States, because this is not stuff that we teach, but it is critically important that we pick someone for president that is going to set us on a different path. And I think that it should be a requirement of anyone who cares about the fate of the country and the fate of the world to vote for a president who at least acknowledges that history and wants to go on a different path. I think it would be absurd for anyone to say, well, I still think the United States is like a bastion of freedom and democracy in the world. And whenever we intervene, it's to spread democracy. It's very clear from the pattern of behavior that that's not the case. And I understand it's not something that's that's taught and it's not something many people would be aware of. And that's why it's good RFK is bringing it into the conversation for those folks.
0: Yeah, it's a very arrogant view of foreign policy. And I would only remind the neocons who are obsessed with this idea of nation building that this was not the conception of foreign policy that the founding fathers, they so revered, had for our country. More rising after this.
1: A pair of jet fighters and a UFO engaged in a standoff over the Michigan town of Bad Axe in early June, according to an organization called the National UFO Reporting Center. Multiple outlets reported that witnesses claimed to have seen what looked like to be a dogfight between F-16s and an Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, or UAP. One witness recounted seeing a white, rapidly moving metallic disc easily outmaneuver the jets.
0: Unlike the Las Vegas sighting caught on police body cam footage, which Rising covered, local authorities say no official police reports have been made. A representative for the 180th Fighter Wing Air National Guard based in Toledo, Ohio, told the outlet OutKick the coverage that there were jets in the area doing dogfighting exercises, but denied they engaged with anything other than fellow jet fighters and certainly not any UFOs. Are they making that up, Jessica? What do you think? Covering for something, maybe?
1: Yeah, there's always a military base nearby, and it was some kind of training exercise. We have so many military bases. The UFO sighting could be anywhere, and they could say, oh, it was the military base closest to that. But I could see a world where we did report here on Rising that there's confirmation of at least a dozen alien spacecraft, non-human spacecraft is how they put it. Now, it has been a mission, according to Michael Schellenberger and other people reporting on this, of the U.S. government, Russia and China to try and replicate technologies of UFOs. So is it possible that this was a UAP manned by non-humans, whether remotely or they were there in person driving the thing? Or is it that we replicated the technology and we were taking it for a test drive? It seems if it was a dogfight and they saw shots being fired it's more likely than not that this UAP was something foreign, something either from Russia, China, or somewhere else in the galaxy or universe, right?
0: Yeah, who knows? I mean, F-16s are notoriously pretty loud aircraft, right? So a dogfight, uh, whether through a training exercise or for real, would certainly capture the attention of civilians. I don't know about this one. I wish it was caught on camera. I'm more liable to believe what we talked about with michael schellenberger last week which was again that 12 unidentified non-human spacecraft are apparently in the government's possession they also apparently recovered non-human pilots which freaked me out frankly um but this one i, I want to see a little more evidence i, I don't want to just jump on the alien train blindly especially since as we all know and as we all had fun in the comments with last week i believe aliens are demons so i don't want them here Yeah,
1: I want them to take me with them. I don't care if they stay or send people to stay here. I will go with them gladly. I'm hopping on the alien train, spacecraft, (laughs) UAP, what have you. I'm on it. But, um, yeah, I think there needs to be some kind of way for us to report on this. I don't know, some kind of trusted center. Maybe it's this national research center of UFOs or what have you, because it seems to me that the government plans on keeping their secrets. At least up until this point, we have to rely on whistleblowers and people are risking losing their security clearance and their job by telling us what the US military knows about UAPs and alien spacecraft. I just want them to be transparent, to be quite frank. I I don't think there's any reason why you have to hide this information from the American public. The only reason I think they're doing it is because they see Russia and China as competitors and who can collect and replicate this technology, which I don't know if that's a good use of our resources. I think as many of the folks we've talked to, like Avi Loeb, have pointed out, this is a matter of human importance uh, disregarding national borders. It's a matter of interest to humanity if there's any kind of life form coming from somewhere else in the galaxy or universe we should all know about it
0: i think the government's other incentive here is to perhaps avoid panic from the populace if there was a national collective idea that um that ufos were real that aliens were real i mean that could freak a lot of people out Um, i don't know how it would necessarily change their behavior but could potentially incite panic. But at the end of the day, we live in a, you know, a democratic republic. We are adults. We have a right to access information that concerns our livelihood and particularly uh, what happens outside of earth. Um, So I, I think it's unfair to the American people to try to hide information based on what the government perceives to be in their best interest. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the way that they handled the COVID pandemic, where Dr. Fauci said at one point that he had fudged the numbers on what it would take to get to herd immunity because he didn't think the American people were ready to hear it yet. And it's like, who are you to decide that, right? Um, Just because you're a so-called expert doesn't mean that you automatically know better than other people about how to best assess their risk. And I think the same should apply to this alien situation.
1: Yeah, I think this kind of paternalistic attitude makes people resent the technocratic state genuinely, the idea that these folks have an education that we don't scares many people they have the information available to them and the training to make decisions on medical research that we don't and we want to trust them but to trust someone you need to have transparency and that's what's really missing this idea that the american public is too stupid to understand if it was explained to them or not ready for it it's just a disgusting way to look at other human beings to put it point blank but the way i think of this Dog fight with the F 16s and the potential UFO is military recruiting numbers are down. We had Top Gun Maverick, I think it's time for Top Gun Martian, Or you've got the <laughs> F 16s, the fighter jets, duking it out with the aliens. I think it could be the good next film in the series.
0: Not to mention a great video game. I mean, I would 100% <laughs> buy that pre release uh, so that I could play it because it sounds incredible. Uh, I think you're right. I mean, why not lean into the alien stuff i mean if this is what gets gen z excited about the military then i'm down for it of course we also have to address the apparent physical fitness issues because i think something like three quarters of gen z and perhaps millennials are not even able to meet the the standards for recruitment which is a real shame but aliens may be the answer
1: yeah, how are we going to fight the aliens if you guys won't get into shape? I don't want to yeah. give the U.S. military any recruiting tactics <laughs> or strategies whatsoever. That is not what I want to do. But I think this story really reflects a, a pattern we're seeing of more and more reporting on UAPs and UFOs. That's really exciting. I think there's some reality behind this theory that there's a soft launch of aliens. So we had David Grush be a whistleblower. Then we had members of the U.S. military and intelligence community confirm what the whistleblower reported on about the spacecraft being obtained by the U.S. government and about potential non-human Uh, pilots of the spacecraft, so it seems to be a trend that we're moving closer to being open about the presence of aliens, at least getting some kind of confirmation from government, which I think is a much better place to be than the one we are now, where it's kind of treated like widespread speculation. Uh, It seems pretty clear to me based on the amount of reporting we've had and people in the intelligence and military community corroborating the same story around what the U.S. government has, it's time for the U.S. government to say something. We live in a democracy, and that's really at the heart of this.
0: Yeah, and I think it's just nice in general to see people taking this seriously now, um, as opposed to mockery or dismissal that has long been the response to um, alleged alien sightings. Um, now people are actually investigating and being willing to, um, uh, you know, accept the supposition, the presupposition that these things are real, and something needs to be done about it. Whether that's simply confirming their existence or learning how to coexist, or perhaps. Uh, going after them and abolishing them, although I know that would make you very sad, Jessica. So maybe we'll save that as a nuclear option. More rising after this. The Federal Reserve has decided to hold off on an interest rate hike after a two-day meeting on the matter, but projected two more hikes for later this year, which could raise interest rates as high as 5.6 percent before the end of 2023, according to CNBC. If the Federal Reserve had decided to hike up interest rates this week, that would have been its 11th consecutive interest rate increase.
1: CNBC reports Fed Chair Jerome Powell said yesterday following the decision, we have raised our policy interest rate by five percentage points and we've continued to reduce our security holdings at a brisk pace. We've covered a lot of ground and the full effects of our tightening have yet to be felt. The next meeting for the Fed is set for July 25th. To the 26. Meanwhile, earlier this week, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was questioned on sanctions and threats to the dollar supremacy when testifying before the House Financial Services Committee. Let's hear some of what she had to say.
4: It is true that when we impose sanctions, um, countries that are afraid they can be the subject of those sanctions um, are motivated to look for um, other tools other than the dollar to engage transactions.
1: So I think what I'm getting at from what she says there is basically if we impose sanctions, people will find alternatives to the dollar, alternatives they might stick with. And if we impose sanctions on countries, for example, like Russia, there's a really funny story about uh, Stephen Kinzer, who was a foreign correspondent for many years, now writes about American intervention. He went to Russia. And the waiter pointed out, look at what great cheese we have. This is Russian cheese. We used to import it from Europe, but then because of the, the sanctions, we learned how to make our own cheese, and now we have such great cheese. And it's really an example of how sanctions can make countries self-sufficient or at least independent from the United States in the global economy.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we've seen a similar move with Russia being able to still uh, you know, financially support itself with its massive... Uh, oil programs and oil sales, whereas the U.S. has moved away from energy independence, which has made it really Um, affected by these price hikes in energy. So these sanctions always have these latent side effects that it seems like the people in power don't really consider. On the question of the interest rate hike, I don't think it's super surprising that they decided to hold off. It was, um, you know, quite a few interest rate hikes in a row and they wanted to kind of give it a pause to see what the effect of those is actually going to be on the economy. Obviously, things don't happen instantaneously in such a massive economy like ours, And we talked on this show about the last jobs report and about the fact that although it looked really good on the surface, we also learned that due to the household survey, a lot of individuals were actually taking on second or third jobs. And the unemployment rate rose at about the same level as the number of people taking on additional jobs or jobs created. And so that gave the Fed a good reason to hold off until its next meeting
1: yeah it sounds to me that there was some pressure from wall street and folks involved in the banking community following the banking collapses we saw this past spring and a lot of blame was directed towards interest rate hikes of course all banks should be stress testing for conditions like the ones we're experiencing now where there's an Incredibly high interest rate after a period of low interest rates. They should have been prepared for that. I don't think that's a legitimate excuse for a lot of the losses that these banks experienced and needed to be bailed out by JPMorgan Chase and the Fed and what have you. I don't think that's, that's an excuse or a reason, but I do think that there was a lot of pressure put on the Federal Reserve by Wall Street and by folks who are concerned about the sentiment around all oh, the collapse of banking in the United States, which we, we know really isn't the case. It was a, a few regional banks and was generally concentrated to those banks, but nevertheless, the sentiment was there and the blame of the Fed was being made. These interest rate hikes have not been popular. And so it, it, it tracks that they would say this month, we're gonna keep it
0: unchanged
1: but we still expect the economy to cool off as a result of of getting these rate hikes up to 5%.
0: Yeah, I mean, selfishly, I uh, don't (laughs) obviously like the interest rate hikes because I just purchased a home. So, of course, I want to try to refinance as quickly as possible. So hearing the news that they're going to continue to push rates up over the next year most likely is definitely concerning. And I know a lot of Americans feel the same way that I do. Um, When you're facing inflation coupled with the interest rate hikes. So it's a really difficult economic situation for a lot of people. It means that a lot of people are priced out of home ownership because naturally you can afford much less house when interest rates are higher, when mortgage rates are higher. So it's it's a really tough time. A lot of Americans are tightening their belts and it's sort of a one-two punch with what they were facing during the pandemic with a lot of people being forced to stay home and not being able to work. Um, and then you get out of the pandemic and all of a sudden everything is more expensive and your wages might be increasing. The job market is largely beneficial to employees more than employers right now, but they're certainly not keeping up with inflation. So this is uh, you know, just a really dastardly situation for especially people who aren't as privileged as I am.
1: For a long time, it was kind of concentrated to the progressive camp of the political spectrum in the United States, that this inflation was not demand driven. It was not a situation of too many dollars chasing too few goods. So reducing the money supply or the amount of dollars the average working person has, which is the Fed's approach, would not be an appropriate one. Now we're at a point where Bloomberg just ran a survey this past week And they found that the majority of investors on Wall Street actually believe the price increases are caused by corporate greed, which becomes very transparent when you look at a balance sheet and you see that their input costs did not go up, but their prices did. They're not raising prices to compensate for inflation that stems from anywhere else other than them making the decision that we're going to raise prices and increase our profit margins and therefore returns to shareholders, which means that our chief executives who are making the decisions about price increases are going to get kickbacks and returns and bonuses because of the increasing stock value of the company. And so that exact feedback loop is hurting Americans all across the country, while chief executives and shareholders on Wall Street are getting rich off of this decision-making process. And you're squeezing workers because the Fed's policy and approach will still shrink small businesses. It will still make more people unemployed. It will still bring wages down without addressing the problem of price increases. And so I think it's an interesting change of tune that investors on Wall Street are recognizing this as well, but it's pretty clear in the numbers and the data.
0: Yeah, I think it's fair to say that quite a few businesses are definitely trying to make up for lost income during the pandemic by raising prices a bit higher than inflation alone would suggest they should be. At the same time, of course, our current inflation is caused by quite a few other things outside of corporate control, such as supply chain issues, the fact that people changed what they were spending money on during the pandemic. We kind of moved away from a services-oriented economy to more of a goods-based economy, which is relatively new for the past five, 10 years in the United States. We also had, of course, a couple of massive pieces of legislation passed that injected tons of money into the economy. So it's Definitely not a single pronged issue in terms of where this inflation is coming from.
1: Yeah, well, we did have uh, some important economic stimulus that was necessary to get the economy going. We also saw the IRS have a record collection year as well. So, money put into the economy and taken back out. And the output gap being negative year over year is the exact metric that would tell us if we do have too many dollars chasing too few goods and it remaining negative, is confirmation that, that that's not the case. And when it comes to supply chain issues, was a huge problem at the beginning of the pandemic, did cause a lot of inflation. But seeing now that we have record profits at companies like Kroger, grocery stores across America, the five biggest oil company raking in billions of dollars, when you have profit margins that are high, It suggests that if the inflation was caused by supply chain issues, they would have had to increase their, their spending when it came to input costs to get those goods and services to market or get those goods and services to the warehouse for production. And so we wouldn't see record profits if they were increasing prices proportionally to those additional costs they're incurring. So I think there were definitely drivers of inflation from the switch, everybody went inside, they were staying at home, they weren't eating in restaurants, they were instead going out grocery shopping, that put a lot of pressure on the good sector and the things people were buying during the pandemic. That was not there before and that did cause some price increases. But I think n- now we're, we're not seeing that as the cause of inflation anymore and prices have remained high, I think because these corporations are motivated to keep lining their pockets with the money. If people are still buying things, they're going to keep the prices high.
0: Yeah, let me uh, suggest to some of the companies out there that you could make a lot of money if you undercut your competition just a little bit and still bring in a profit and that would be a win-win for everybody. We'll be back with more Rising after this. the Director of National Intelligence published a report Monday detailing how U.S. intelligence agencies are buying up Americans' data, including but not limited to one's personal attributes, private behavior, social connections, and speech of U.S. and non-U.S. citizens.
1: The report revealed that these agencies are amassing the personal data unabated with little oversight and few guidelines, writing, quote, It can be misused to pry into private lives, ruin reputations, and cause emotional distress and threaten the safety of individuals, even subject to appropriate controls. CAI can increase the power of government's ability to peer into private lives to levels that may exceed our constitutional traditions or other social expectations. The report's author further concluded that it could be a threat to Americans rising reached out to the office of the Director of National Intelligence for comment, but we have not heard back. So this is really concerning. I think uh, data in the hands of the government that's being misused or in the hands of corporations that's being used against our interests is always bad and always scary. And I think um, we should be just as worry about, worried about Google having our information as we are the U.S. government amassing this information and using it against us.
0: Yeah, it's incredibly disturbing the level of personal information that the government is apparently not just collecting through its own intelligence surveillance means, but actually buying and purchasing for the uh, intent of using it against Americans. uh, That's obviously no good. And I cannot stand the common refrain from some individuals in the government or even just uh, politicos who will say, If you have nothing to hide then you shouldn't be worried right well plenty of people still don't want you peering into their bathroom while they're taking a shower even if they look incredible right because we have this sort of um unexpressed right to privacy that the supreme court has upheld over the years and um the idea that uh you know, you're supposed to be living this perfect life behind closed doors so that it's no big deal if the government comes to look at your communications is just inconsistent with the idea of living in a free democracy.
1: Yeah, when I think about like the Cold War era politics of the United States and the red listing of U.S. citizens. Uh, It's a little scary to think that the US government could have data on your personal communications and say, okay, these folks seem a little bit radical. It seems like they disagree with the ongoings of what the US government is up to. This is anti-American, it's a threat to our country. This is treason, we're gonna go and get these people, right? It would be very easy to look at conversations among citizens where they're expressing discontent with government. And then they decide to take that kind of an approach to dealing with that kind of sentiment in the United States. That's really terrifying, especially the legislation that they just passed that was widely known as the TikTok ban, but would grant Congress the power to at will, at their discretion, decide to take down websites on the internet and web-based apps. That's a lot of power for the U.S. government to have. And I think we need to get to a place where people own the rights to their data because it's their data. It's something collected on them. And this is one of the problems with not writing some new stuff to interpret our existing amendments and our existing basic rights in the Constitution to some of the modern problems where it's not very clear cut but I don't know if I would trust this Congress to write that amendment. I don't know if I would trust the Supreme Court to rule on this. We're in a really tricky situation where we have a lot of very, very old people in Congress who don't understand what is even meant by us saying the word data, and that is scary.
0: It's also concerning when we have a very politicized justice system that seems to go against political opponents rather than real threats to the country. I mean, just in the past couple of years, we have the DOJ writing memos saying that Catholics who attend traditional Latin mass are liable to be domestic extremists. The Richmond field office even sending people to infiltrate Catholic churches. You have the arrest of pro-life activists for daring to picket outside of abortion clinics. You have the DOJ going after Donald Trump for withholding documents when it's exactly the same thing that the current president did back from when he was a senator and vice president. Um, So it's all very concerning because of the way that this information has repeatedly been weaponized against normal Americans. I mean, that's not to mention the fact that the FBI has all of these informants across across protests, which are First Amendment events held by American citizens, where they're there to potentially try to rile people up and get them to commit crimes. I certainly don't trust that apparatus to have any personal information on me, which I'm sure they already have tons of, and I'm sure I'm on plenty of lists, but that doesn't mean I'm okay with it, right? Right, yeah. I
1: I think back to the move bombing of 1985 and the Cobbs Creek neighborhood in Philadelphia. We shouldn't be allowed to bomb an entire residential neighborhood and set it on fire as the FBI. The US government just shouldn't have the power to wage war against their own citizens based on information they have about these citizens being potential political adversaries of the state. When we live in a country where we want a true democracy. And this is something that the founding fathers wrote quite eloquently about, that a uh, faction is fire and, you know, we need it uh, despite it being fire. You know, it's something that can burn us, uh, but without it, you know, this whole thing cease to exist, our democracy. It's necessary to have political factions in the United States if we want to have this truly be a free society and a real democracy. We need the free exchange of ideas. And if some folks want to live in a neighborhood in Philly and allow their grass to be very overgrown and have this idea that they're living in a radical commune and they're not hurting anybody else, that shouldn't be a threat to the U.S. government because it's, it's not, it's just people living their lives how they choose to in their residential area. And so it's really scary to think that they could use this data against us in a similar way that they have in, in the past, but the scale of data that they would have and the access to information from places like Google that are constantly collecting it on us collecting it on us when we just use the website to make online searches, collecting it on us when we're using Gmail and entering our information and address. They can see a lot of our preferences when we're shopping online. They have an absurd amount of data about our behavior. And to think that they could have the data on our communications as well, makes us even more terrifying. And we have to get to a place or people just have the rights to their data. It's that simple. Corporations should have to pay you to use your data. They shouldn't have to pay Google for it when they collected it on you just by you using their search engine or their Gmail app or their social media platforms. Uh, it's really uh, scary times that we have such little, little regulation and this is growing at such an intense speed.
0: This brings to mind for me, for whatever reason, the recent death of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, um, because of the fact that this was a guy who was, by all accounts, a genius who had a lot of potential and under the MK Ultra program, was basically radicalized into this awful terrorist. I mean, that's not the people that I certainly want trusting with some of the most intimate details about my life that wraps it up for us today but brie and robbie will be back this afternoon actually for a very exciting interview with 2024 democratic presidential candidate robert f kennedy jr
1: thanks everyone Uh, make sure to look for us wherever you find your podcast we'll be back with you next week on friday